Welcome back to the Midweek Debrief Season 2. I'm Jasper and I ride a black Triumph Scrambler 900. Here's how it sounds. I'm Jed and I ride a straight pipe Triumph Bonneville. Here's how it sounds. Join us each week as we catch up, discuss the latest headlines in the biking world, tackle a topic and answer your questions. We also have some exciting guest interviews lined up for this season, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Motone Customs. If you're like us and you're always looking for the next custom part for your bike, Motone has loads on offer, from headlight to taillight and everything in between. With daily worldwide dispatch, Motone are here to cater for all your custom needs. Check out what's on offer at www.motone.co.uk. At the end of season one, we asked you guys for your feedback. By far, the most popular response was people asking to have guest interviews on the show. We're so excited to be bringing on our first guest, Dutch Van Sommeren, founder of The Bike Shed. The Bike Shed, for those of you who don't know, is a motorcycle hotspot in London, a place to hang out, eat great food and meet with friends. The Bike Shed also have a very successful show each year held at the Tobacco Docks in East London. Expect to hear how the shed began, how they survived during the pandemic how they expanded overseas with the Bike Shed LA, whose idea it was to have their iconic driveway, and much more. Enjoy. Okay, welcome back to the Midweek DB. We've got a very special guest. First ever guest on the show. It's Dutch from the Bike Shed. Well, I, I hope I give you a good, a good shout on the first go. I'll do my best. Indeed, indeed. It's so great to have you on. Jed and I are keen visitors of the shed we've been going for yep. years that's actually how we met i don't know if you know i did hear that actually which did i love i love hearing about people who've made friendships and yeah, at bike shed that's what it's for it, yeah. exactly and you know we were both there on our own i'm on one table he's on the next we're both it's a summer evening having a drink and we just got get, chatting get, yeah chatting and then here we are perfect yeah. that's exactly why we exist so we want to start by hearing about where you began with biking what was your first bike? Where did you grow up? How did you get into it? Well, I grew up in Sussex, so about kind of 45, 50 miles away from London. And so it was kind of weird. It was sort of in the country, but everybody who lived there, all their dads worked in London. So it was kind of sort of London vibe, but mm. in, a, in a town, a small small town. I went to a local comprehensive school. Um, we, we, and it was odd. It was kind of uh, you know, there were bankers and airline pilots, but then there were farmers and shopkeepers. It was kind of quite nice, actually, quite a mix, yeah. sort of, a, you know, quite uniquely British comprehensive school, but quite classless. It was quite good. And a lot of us spent a lot of time in the countryside on bicycles and in the woods and getting dirty. So as soon as you got to the age of 17, you buy a motorcycle. I mean, that's it. It was, I mean, I'm, I'm getting on a bit now. So this was in the 70s and you, you didn't buy a car that wasn't on the cards so my first motorcycle was a suzuki ts125x which is kind of yellow scrambler dirt bike thing Sorry. you know trail bike looks like looks like the suzuki rm250 yeah. which that's what that's what i wanted really and uh yeah that was that really it was about how do you get to the next town how do you get to the pub you know and uh or to your girlfriend's house that was transport. Awesome. That is cool. 
and was that were you riding that on the road that was all road legal oh yeah yeah it was it was definitely road transport but the the great thing was about that area was there was a lot of farmland mm. um there was no such thing as a cctv that back then and uh, there were a lot of shortcuts i bet and a lot of very tiny windy roads and uh um, my friends and i used to also go ride up to fleet uh, where they used to do all the military testing for tanks and things. Oh, cool. And you could just ride through the hedge into military, Ministry of Defence, test, tank testing ground. And basically that is jumps, jumps and dips. Wow. Because, you know, obviously they're making the tanks go up and down in these big kind of ruts and valleys. Yeah. So we treated that as a giant motocross track. And then what was your next bike on from there? Because presumably that was a kind of basic test, like a CBT. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically back back in those days, uh, you got your provisional license and you could ride a 125 yeah. until you took your test and then you could ride anything. So, so what, that, was, so what was your next bike? My next bike unimaginatively was a TS250X. Okay. <laughs> the next step up. Yeah, next step up. I mean, I like that style of bike. It was kind of, it was a supermoto before supermoto really. And uh I like I like dirt bikes, the upright riding position, and so I just got the. I think it was the biggest bike that was a dirt bike. It was before all the KLRs and all the other sort of, you know, big deserty type bikes. So TS two fifty X. Yeah, awesome. And then, at what point did you then move to London? Um, I think I was nineteen. Yeah, I was nineteen. Cool. Yeah, I'm trying to work out. It's a difficult to answer those questions sometimes when you're getting on a little bit and you can't remember um it's because it's just a lot of years ago um yeah I, I went to media college got a place um uh, in in wandsworth college studying um doing a national diploma in audio visual design when that was a thing and uh came up to london and and, uh, and the bike i bought with me which was very inappropriate was um i had a ktm 600 lc4 uh, which was a dirt bike um, on a Q plate with battery lights and <laughs> no side stand uh, because I thought that would be perfect for London, obviously. Uh, but I just got stopped by the police all the time. I bet. And, and presumably whenever you stopped uh, at university or whatever, you'd just lean it up against the wall. Yeah, it had no side stand, so you had to lean it up. I mean, there wasn't a lot of bike theft back then and nobody would have really known how to start it. Yeah. So yeah, I just uh, left it outside my flat in an alleyway, leaned up against the wall. Wow. That's got to be so much fun, though, that style of bike around London. It was brilliant. I mean, you know, I, I still love that sort of bike, and it was good. It was very impractical. The lights really didn't work. Battery lights back in those days. Yeah. It was none of that lithium-ion stuff. I mean, it was just like a battery on the handlebar. Very crude. It was very, very crude, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. But, um, yeah, after I did swap it, and I was quite gutted. Uh, there was this guy who lived up the road from me, and I lived in Camden, and he had... A GT 550 Kawasaki like proper courier yeah. bike and but it was all black and he made it look quite cool it was kind of a bit like a Z650 but not really yeah and uh, he kept looking at my bike and I kept looking at his bike and he just said do you want to swap and what was weird was he was really short really like really short like five foot three or something and I was like how are you gonna get on my bike but obviously I didn't care uh, because I thought the GT 550 looked cool and I would get stopped less often. Yeah. And so we swapped bikes and uh, he crashed it within a day and wrote it off. Wow. So, oops. So that's going to be horrible seeing your old bike. I didn't him. see it. He, I just saw him limping and I was oh. like, what happened? And he said, I'm afraid your bike's a write-off. So, um, oops. Sad. Very sad. Very sad. Oh, well, what a great story. And then, so then when did the shed come involved? How, how did that Well, happen? that was obviously quite a long time later. Um, 
I spent a long time working in broadcasting um, and then advertising and publishing. And so I, I had a sort of proper grown-up career for a long time and it got quite cushy and nice. And to be honest, I think it got boring. I was really bored. Um, and through kind of the 90s and early noughties, that whole world was kind of dumbing down. You know, mm. when I when I really, when I got into TV at the beginning, it was a real art of making programming. And then it became more and more kind of, we did a thing at MTV called Real World and suddenly everybody was just doing, you know, this kind of lifestyle fake yeah. rubbish. And it just, it just got worse and worse and it wasn't an interesting industry to be in anymore. And uh, and I, I had free time. Yeah. And, uh, and I ended up, um, working four days a week for this advertising agency and um, it was all right but I wasn't really challenged by it and, and all the friends I accumulated through all my jobs all rode motorcycles they were my real buddies they, they were the ones who didn't w just want a job or a gig yeah. they, they were the ones who wanted to go for a ride so I knew that there was a certain kind of motorcycle rider that was out there and, and they were a bit different from other human beings and uh, and I started blogging about bike culture in about 2010 yeah because i saw that it all essentially started from the blog yeah and it was just custom motorcycles and the, the custom community that you were writing about yeah it was kind of that era when um i think deus had started in australia and there was also bike exif yeah so chris hunter had left his ad agency moved to wherever he was and was emailing a, a motorcycle into your inbox every day on email, every week, one, a bike a week, I think. Because it was like a new wave, wasn't it? That sort of yeah, and around. they called it, we all called it the new wave custom culture because basically the manufacturers didn't build bikes anybody wanted to ride anymore. Yeah. They were sports bikes where you couldn't tell them apart um, and or they were commuter bikes and no one cared. And they were ugly. Mm. They, they were designed by committee and no one cared. So we all had older bikes. And everybody was getting, I mean, I had a Z1R, I had a Z650, I had a Z1000, I like my Kawasaki's. And, uh, and it was kind of, you know, my, my friend Ben had an, a, a, one of the kind of, I suppose, at the time, a newer Triumph that he turned into a bit of a scrambler. Everybody was taking these old bikes, guzzies and things like that, and making them look cool. You know, it was that, yeah, I mean, who was around at that time? And I, I remember um, seeing, I can't remember who built it now, which is really bad. Uh, but Ewan McGregor had this uh, Guzzi 850 Le Mans that was called the OB1 and it was used in the Davida commercials. Yeah. And it was such a cool bike. And all this stuff was going on and I just started writing about that. And, and actually Vicky, uh, my wife, uh, bought me a Ducati Sport Classic 1000. Is that the one that's at the shed? It's a white one that you oh, see at the, the shed. It's the not shed. the Paul Smart one, it's a different one. It was okay. black and then it was red and now it's white. Because uh, it, now it's Vicky's, obviously, and yeah. it's been slightly lowered. But what happened was, I was, I was, I kind of got into my KTM's, and uh, and I had a Super Duke, and then a Super Duke R, and and because I'd had Supermotos before that, and the bikes were just getting faster and louder, and you, I rode like a twat in mm. London, and but I was following all these sites about all these kind of retro bikes, and I was like, I really want something that I can customize and personalize, and they were really cheap. Yeah. So she, she well not really cheap, but because but it was a motorbike. But she bought me one of these bikes, wow. and just at the time when just before they were super cool, um, I think Tron the film had come out, and in the opening scene of the new Tron movie, oh, yeah. you see this Ducati Sport Classic Thousand, black yeah. and gold limited edition, 
um, you know, riding through these tunnels before he goes into the whatever it is, the, the metaverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and everybody was like, what is that? And they'd stopped making them by then. So they were cheap. So I had one of those and I started customizing it. And I was, I was blogging about customizing it. But I had friends who we met down the pub and they were also getting into customizing their bikes. A couple of them, a guy, guys called uh, Tim and Kev, had this uh, brand called Spirit of the 70s. And mm. they were customizing kind of old Kawasaki's and things and putting Brembo's and Olin's on them and Renthal handlebars and making them cool. And, and then uh, Adam had started Untitled Motorcycles, Adam K. And we were all just hanging out and they, they kind of had blogs as well, but their blogs weren't very curated. And I said, well, why don't we combine them all and turn them into one blog? Because my blog was called Full Tilt and it was just really about my bike. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't we put them together? Because there's all this other stuff going on. And, uh, and I thought Bike Exif was cool, but didn't have any soul. It mm. was just, it was usually five pictures. Very black and white. Yeah, and, and it was also, you, you had to send your pictures in a certain format and a certain aspect ratio. It wouldn't edit them. Uh, okay. And they had to be good quality pictures. And, and then you sent a description of your bike. So every, every week I'd get a picture of a really beautiful bike, but you wouldn't know who owned it or why they rode it. There was no yeah. story. And you'd go, well, it's got, you know, flat side carbs. Great, but why? Yeah. You know, and it, is it sitting in your living room or do you ride it every day? Those things weren't really covered. So my, my stuff was a bit more underdog. And when we started combining other people's stories, what happened was people started emailing me and saying, would you put my bike on your blog? And there were companies out there like Cafe Racer Dreams and mm. Corona. There were a whole bunch of European builders and like the down and out guys, yeah. uh, down and out cafe racers up north. And they'd send pictures and they'd, they were usually crap photos and I'd have to Photoshop them and fix them. And they, they'd send me specs of, of the bike and I'd say, yeah, but who are you? Yeah. And why did you do that? So we ended up with this underdog blog. And, uh, and that, that was the beginnings of the bike shed was me telling other people's stories. Because that, that sort of grew over a few years um, and it was, became one of the most popular commentators on the scene. Well, yeah, I mean, looking back, that's definitely the story. I remember it being a bit ragtag and a bit rough around the edges. Yeah. And I think what transformed it was actually Facebook mm. because we, we put the blog, I say we, of course, I was doing all the work and the others were just like, well, here's some pictures. <laughs> but I put it on Facebook because Facebook was a thing. And it was at that time when Facebook was new. And I guess we got caught up with the Facebook wave of growth. Got the boom. And it allowed me to share stuff. And the thing about Facebook is, you know, you put your own stuff on, but you also could share other people's content. And, uh, and that me it, it turned me into a curator. Yeah. So people wanted me to share their stuff, which was kind of a privileged position to be in. And then I think we, we only had about 21,000 followers or something. So it wasn't like some giant thing. But I think it got a lot of attention. I think people really cared about it because, you know, I really gave a shit. I just thought that these bikes were important and interesting and I really was interested in the human stories. So I don't think it wasn't like some massive thing, but it was definitely very real and, and proper. And, uh, and I think that's kind of where we won friends. Wow, that's so cool. And so you were gathering these pictures and information and stories about bikes. And then how did that then translate into starting a show? Well, um, the show thing was because we were all a group of people that would hang out. We used to go to the Landseer pub in, um, off Holloway Road and a group of friends of ours and, and also up to the Flask in Highgate. And so it was me, me and about sort of 10 friends and Vicky and a couple of other people. And we, we kind of 
kept moaning about the state of magazines and bike shows. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was kind of, I think it was 2012. And uh, I think, yeah, it was probably kind of, yeah, autumn, winter. And everybody was like talking about the bike shed show, the the bike show, not the bike shed show, the bike show in Birmingham, uh, which is always in November. And it was like, well, who's going to go to the bike show? And everyone was like looking at each other going, well, what for? You know, so there's like 12 people sitting around a table who all, you know, spend all their money on motorcycles. who have got custom bikes outside, parked outside yeah. in, the, in the parking area. And we don't want to go to a bike show. And that's kind of a bit shocking, really. And, uh, and we started talking about what would it be like if we did a bike show? What if Bike Shed did a show? And, uh, and obviously, you know, we're sitting in a very nice pub, eating nice food. I think I was having steak and kidney pie. And it was kind of like, well, you'd want really good food. You, you don't want upper crust and Costa coffee, you know, yeah. you and, and a plastic <laughs> chair. You want Chesterfield sofas and you want it to be like a man cave. Yeah. Like a, you know, like in a cool shed. It's a good atmosphere. And, you know, with kind of a, a little G plan table on a carpet and art on the walls and photography and good live music. And maybe there'll be pop up tattoo shops and pop up barber shops. And we kind of brainstormed this show that didn't exist. And all the gear would be curated because, you know, it's the, the shows, the bike shows now aren't so bad. And I think they've obviously taken the leaf out of a few other bike shows books. But they, at the time, they really were, they, they're run by the manufacturers. The Motorcycle Industry Association would set up these shows. And if I'm, I'm right, and obviously listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but depending on your market share, that's how big your plot is. Oh, and, and I think it's all paid for by, the, you know, the industry, or it was back then. And so you're going there to, for a marketing experience to see the bikes that, you, that were going to be on sale next year. And there was nothing any of us wanted to see. No. Because there's bikes, in it, but completely irrelevant motorcycles. I think the only thing I was vaguely interested in was Ducati and I think the Street Fighter was out or something. And, but even then we weren't that bothered. So it was kind of like, well, the bikes should be curated. They should be there for a reason. But the other part of these industry shows was you got these big trade areas, but they were basically discount sales. It was like last year's gear at 50% yeah. off and it was also a good place to go and buy a dark visor for your showy crash helmet <laughs> because you know you, it wasn't easy to buy them online no. so that was the only reason to go was to buy odd stuff Yeah. and we were like well that's not very inspiring is it and meanwhile there's somebody trying to sell you shoe polish or polish your shoes as you walk past which <laughs> I always thought was a bit weird um, or kind of a spanner set and I was like that's not a cool experience and also, Vicky, who rides a bike, wouldn't go with me. She'd be like, I'm not going to the bike show. That sucks. Mm. So um, we kind of worked out what a show should be like. And we were saying, well, you should be get, able to get a really good coffee, like a nice barista, yeah. you know, maybe a flat white, um, you know, or something. And I think it was probably before oat milk, so maybe it wasn't an oat milk thing. But, you know, it was, it was where you might be able to get a beer that wasn't in a plastic glass and sit around and read magazines and chat to people. And it would be kid friendly and the w women would go there because they like bikes not because they were paid to go there by a marketing company to wear lycra and do data capture yeah <laughs> and i think that was the other thing because the last thing i want to do is shuffle around a sausage factory full of fat blokes squeezed into all fitting <laughs> leathers tire kicking um, and trying to avoid having your shoes polished as you walk past somebody's stand it's a crap experience so we had this kind of i guess this carlsberg fueled conversation about what bike shows should be and they should be cool and they should be in central London in cool buildings yeah. and accessible and, and you know, fun. And then um, I went away slightly inspired and uh, booked railway arches in Shoreditch 
and went back a week later and said, right, I've booked Railway Arches, we're doing it in May. Because we also didn't really understand why a bike show would be in November. I was like, yeah. it's really cold. Freezing cold. It's freezing cold. You have to go to Birmingham. It makes it even colder. Yeah. You've got miles to walk from the car park to the vent to the actual XL. Mm. None of it's pleasing. Not XL. And you don't want to turn up on yeah. the bike. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and, and we'd go by train in the end because exactly. you couldn't carry anything. So um, so I so I was like, well, it's you know central London indoors. Let's do it in May because that's the season opener. Mm. Let's inspire people to do stuff. So everyone obviously thought I was nuts, but everybody put in a bit of money. Actually, everybody said, right, okay, well, what's it going to cost? I think it cost us 12 grand and I think 12 of us put a grand in something like that I might be simplifying things slightly but we just put on this show and thought let's see what happens and uh, and I emailed all the people that had been contributing their bikes to the blog and the Facebook page and said if we do a show will you come and they all said yeah so um, we, we had 55 bikes it wasn't huge it was quite a lot of motorcycles I suppose we thought it was huge at the time um, in these railway arch arches in Shoreditch, not where the bike shed is now, but down the road, and um, and then we had art on the walls and photography and cool stuff, and there were all these kind of artists around at the time, um, you know, doing cool things and photographers doing cool things, and it was very easy to curate this show at mm. the time, and and also have cool retail with stuff that's new, not old, yeah. you know, not the stuff that's on discount, but the stuff that's just come out, and it was that it was curating this experience. And we put the show on, it was free, and 3,000 people turned up. Wow. And we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is something. This is a thing. And they yeah. all came just by, by me telling people on Facebook, we're doing a show. So it was this kind of magic time where that sort of stuff was possible. And uh, we realized it was a thing. And I think um, it, after the show, we, there was a, a little piece in Motorcycle News, and it said something along the lines of a bunch of amateurs put on the best motorcycle show we've ever seen. Wow. And we were like, oh, this is a that thing. That must be a good <laughs> feeling, though. It was a very good feeling. Also, the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride had just happened because we planned this in 2012 and we did it in 2013, but the first DGR was um, September 2012. And I met Mark Howard online, as you do, because he was, I think he was the, the owned a blog called Southsiders, which was this Australian blog. I think it was Southsiders. And, of course, I had Full Tilt and then Bike Shed. So we got to be kind of blog-owning buddies. Yeah. And we were all talking about this picture of John Hamm on a BSA in a suit. And he said, well, I'm gonna, I've created this thing called the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride. And, and uh, I said, well, if you do a ride in Sydney, I'll do the ride in London. So that very first DGR, I think we had 77 riders on the London ride. So all of this stuff was all happening at the same time. There was a kind of, it, it's, it's the first time I've understood the meaning of the word zeitgeist, when yeah. everything's happening all at once. So we had the DGR and then we had the Bike Shed show and then I think it was the same year the one show happened in the States. And, uh, and it was all kind of bubbling. It was all everything. It was just about to kick off. Yeah, and I think Deus had, were moving about and doing new things. And a lot of these kind of bike builders were becoming kind of celebrated and noted. And it was just this kind of weird magic bubble of a time. So we did another show that October because we thought, well, let's do the season opener and the season closer. So let's look at the bikes people have built all through the summer. Yeah. And then we'll do another show at the end and show and say, well, what did you build? And then that show was, we had a third arch and it was, I can't remember how many people turned out, I think 5,000 people and we had more bikes. And, wow. and it was just this magic little bubble of a time, but it was just a hobby. And I think what we did was we charged a fiver the second time and we made our money back from the first show. No. <laughs> so we broke even. So I think some of, the, some of the best ideas are formed in the pub 
Yeah. And they're off the back of hobbies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was definitely a hobby. It was definitely not a job. It was definitely in a pub. And that's where all the passion comes from to create an event like that. Yeah. I feel from hobbies. Yeah, but it was also realising that a whole bunch of people who love motorcycles weren't being served by the motorcycle industry. It's true. You've got the manufacturers not building bikes that we want to ride. You've got magazines not writing in a way that was interesting to us and shows that were kind of ruining and commoditizing our passion. So we managed to slot into this space where builders were building bikes people actually wanted and magazines were falling away to people writing online. And then suddenly shows were becoming experiences and you could actually bring your other half and your kids and they'd all have a good time and stay all day yeah no it's a really enjoyable experience especially so i did my first bike shed show last year and uh i really enjoyed it probably one of the best it's been the best event i've been to as far as shows go for the year and uh it really captures the family um atmosphere i suppose everything's just family friendly and everyone wants to have a chat and everyone's engaging and i think that's really great yeah, I mean, it's, there's, the thing is, most people who ride motorcycles are really nice people. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the other thing I loved about what we were doing and also being involved in the DGR as well because, uh, you know, although that wasn't my thing, I felt very attached to it, that it was showing bikers in a different light because most stuff about motorcycles was, you know, these days it's, you know, lunatics uh, doing 180 miles an hour on yeah. a sports bike and then nearly dying or somebody snatching a phone out of your hand on a scooter or it's, you know, stories of biker gangs shooting each other and it wasn't you know we'd get a pretty bad rap and uh and i used to love saying well if, if they're the one percenters we're the 99 percenters there's That's quite it. a lot of us mm. and we're not being served you know and i really don't care if the latest version of a motorcycle has lost half a kilo and got two more brake horsepower i don't care no i mean do i like it and you know the ultimate test of a motorcycle is when you walk away do you look back <laughs> that's it if you don't wrong bike yeah and it's not transport you know and, and that was the other th realization for me is you know a lot of the manufacturers thought they were in the transport industry and they're not they're in the lifestyle industry yeah. and they're in the transport industry and their key relationship is not with buyers it's with dealers mm. so they build transport they're engineers who build transport and they sell to dealers but us punters think that they own a brand and we love their brand yeah. and that we have a relationship with them but actually that's not really what was going on back in those days so we were able to fit into all those areas that nobody was really looking at I so resonate with what you've said because when I first started riding on the road before I discovered the shed you know I'd ride out to places like Rikers Epping Tea Hut you know and it would always be a tea hut on the side of the road and it would be you had your tea and a sort of a sandwich if you could get one you know with mm. ham in it and I always used to find that when I was on the bike, I loved it. But when I was off the bike at biker spots, it was the hospitality was kind of never there and, and always a bit lacking. Like you said, you know, a plastic chair, if you're lucky and on the side of the road. And I think that's probably what so many people are drawn to with the shed is that you've got the, you still got the bike a bit, but then you've got everything else that was maybe missing before. So once you'd had the two shows, how, whose idea was it to get somewhere permanent? Well, we did our second show and um, we, I mean, I guess the theme of the show was club. Because if you meet someone who rides a bike, it's like you're in a club together. It's like a secret handshake, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you go to a really boring wedding and you're stuck on a, one of the boring tables out the edge and you discover the bloke sitting near you rides a bike and all of a sudden, you know, you found a common ally. New best mates, yeah. Yeah, new best mate. Um, and and I th so we, we wanted it to be comfortable and club-like. And, and also, I guess it was that idea of, you know, the opposite of bad hospitality because we've all moved on a bit since the 70s, but we're still dealing with 70s hospitality. 
you know and there, there are certain places I won't mention where I don't understand why you can't get a good coffee or nice food it doesn't make mm. any sense everywhere else you go you know people are asking for flat whites and cappuccinos and you know you go to some biker venues if you ask for a flat white you probably <laughs> get you kicked out the door yeah. <laughs> and never mind you know wanting some sort of milk that didn't come from a cow <clears throat> so I didn't you know to me that was really obvious because you know we spent our time going to pubs or bar italia so what does that say you know yeah. we'd rather be sitting somewhere comfortable or having a good coffee so we 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 created this thing that was just up to date that's all it was it was just how what does hospitality look like now well it's not a melted kit kat and a cup of tea in a plastic cup on the side of of motorway is it so that was it was obvious it wasn't rocket science but what turned it into being something more full-time was we had people coming to the show going why is this just the weekend why isn't this every day and and i was like well because obviously it wouldn't work would it like who's going to come to this every day but people were quite persuasive and there were a couple of um couple of the visitors one of them was a guy called frederick and uh avid biker um you know owns about 19 motorcycles and uh he was a well-off guy successful um and uh you know he he was actually the chief the ceo of stella mccartney so successful guy but lived and breathed bikes and another guy was this um guy who was in real estate and they were just visitors to the show and his a uh, guy called a si uh, guy called nicholas cowell who's simon cowell's brother completely random um, and they didn't know each other, but both of them individually sought me and Vicky out and said, what is this? Why is this a thing? And why isn't this permanent? And so we all ended up together having a bit of a meeting because they were going, this should be full time. This should be a thing. And I was like, well, we've got grown up jobs and it's just a hobby, but thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and they were like, no, this really should be a thing. And I said, well, we'd, it might not work and we'd need a lot of money. And they said, well, we've got, we know friends who've got some money. So, um, why don't we put a business plan together? So um, me and Vicky wrote a business plan and then we thought, well, let's see if anybody will give us any money. And then they did. And we were like, oh, okay, this is complicated. So we decided to look into, f well, we actually found these railway arches up the road from where we'd done our show because we thought it should be in the middle of London and it needed a bit of grit and Shoreditch was pretty gritty at the time because Bike Shed was, f it was four five-a-side football yeah. pitches. And uh, we knew that they'd measured the pitches wrong. So they couldn't go in the leagues. So they had to get rid of them and they were stuck in a lease. And we were like, ooh, could we get these? And everybody was looking at us like, you know, no, no one's going to rent these to you. And we wanted it to be a, a bar with a license and a restaurant. And it was like the whole place was just permitted for football or storage. But we, I didn't realize you could make a planning application for a building you don't own. Oh, or maybe you can't and we just did it anyway and they thought we had <laughs> it <coughs> but anyway we, we, we put in planning and, and we had to go to the council offices and show them what we were had in mind because Shoreditch is in an area called the SPA the Special Provisions Authority or something or Special Policy Area I can't remember what it stands for but the, the rule was no, no, no more bars too many bars and no new licences and I remember going there all dressed up in a suit with pictures from the DGR <coughs> going, these are the types of ladies and gentlemen who'll be coming to our to our lovely bar. This is all about the gentleman biker, and selling in this idea of these kind of, you know, tweed wearing gentlemen, motorcycle yeah. riders and their lovely wives coming to this rare, rather lovely bar in Shoreditch, 
and they went for it and gave us a license which was a miracle we we had this uh lawyer with us who's going you're not going to get it uh, no chance and uh saying make this compromise and make that compromise and we were like no no it won't work if we don't do if we won't work if it's beer only and it won't work if it's got to close at nine and it won't work if we do that <coughs> and we we got it so um then we rented this place and the idea was to hire other people to run it and then we just kind of realized it was too magical and too special to not run it ourselves so we gave up our well-paid four day a week media jobs with six weeks holiday a year and bonuses and a really good life to work seven days a week for 10 years and be really wow. tired all the time. Well, thanks for doing that. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Whose idea was it to uh, have the driveway? Because I think that is probably Bike Shed's USP. I mean, that there are lots of people that come to the shed and they're like, we just want the yeah, driveway. Yeah. Well, it was it was the only way to get to the parking arch. <laughs> I mean, we knew that, you know, you've got to have the restaurant at the front. Um, and we also, well, I mean, originally the idea for the driveway was people would park in the driveway and so, you know, that that's when we first opened. If you look at the earliest photos, there weren't any tables and chairs outside. So that driveway was bike parking. Uh, but we really quickly realized that it wasn't big enough because if you look at the driveway, it's, it's actually three levels and each one's got a little slope between them. So you can't park the bikes on the slopes and they're about two meters long. So you've got like four meters, two meters, four meters, two meters. You can only get about 20 bikes out there. Mm. And straight away, it was like, well, that's not going to work. So we started letting people park in the end arch. And then, we, and then when we realized that that was better, then we started putting, because we only had tables and chairs under the arch bits, because oh. you know how the walls are set back. Yeah. That was so we could have indoor, outdoor kind of covered dining. But everybody wanted to sit outside, so we put tables on the other side. And we were pretty worried that children and dogs and waitresses and waiters would get run over. Yeah. And it's still, that is still, you know, one of our panics is because people come down that driveway and they're either nervous and yeah. can't ride slowly very well. They get a bit wobbly or they're showing off and they try and ride really fast to show how cool they are. And so uh, that riding down the driveway is a source of a huge amount of tension <laughs> as well yeah, as a huge amount of joy. And, you know, people who like to blip their throttle, not really thinking that they've just, you know, blown their exhaust in someone's face and they're trying to... Yeah drink a coffee and eat eggs benedict so it's kind of um it's a good filter for twats yeah. you certainly see who all the twats are who come down there too fast or showing off or blipping their throttle but um yeah i mean it's become an iconic ride it's the catwalk isn't it yeah it's the catwalk where everyone gets to see your bike um and it's kind of cool we couldn't replicate that in la because we'd get sued uh just too much risk yeah i mean we didn't really have the layout for it it's a pretty unique building layout yeah but I think it's going to be hard to replicate in other places. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's pretty cool. So speaking of LA, how long was the shed going in London before that became an idea? Um, I think it became an idea pretty quick. We, we opened the shed in 2015 in November. And, uh, and then I think by probably the beginning of 2017, we realized that everybody, early days everyone thought we were in america anyway when we were a blog they were like where are you in california and we were like no we're in london and um so we we knew that the market in america was huge because biking there is mainstream it's normalized yeah. it's not a niche like it is here and you don't need to have a small fortune to ride a bike in london or get insurance or have to be over That's 30. True. so um, and everybody rides dirt bikes and you know everyone's got a harley and a dirt bike in their garage even if they forgot it was there 
So we knew there was a huge culture and also a lot of businesses are based in California, a lot of companies um, and that, that make things, whether it's Roland Sands or, you know, iron and resin or, I mean, you know, a lot of people out there making bikes and builders like Shinya Kimura and Cot and so many that we knew it was a huge thing and a huge culture and the roads were amazing. So really early on, we knew that we if we were going to expand outside of London, probably it was easier to go to California than it was to go to Manchester. Yes. Because I'd love to do bike shed in Manchester or Bristol or lots of cool cities around UK, but I'd, I'd be really worried about when actually making money on a cold day in February. Yeah. Because, you know, we need to have a venue that works. You need people to come every day. So you need people to come and have lunch on a Tuesday when it's raining. You know, yeah. you can't just be evenings and weekends. Or you can, but that's not really a business. Of course, then you can't do the shop. And so, because it's so expensive to run to have a, any kind of retail or restaurant business you, you can't have it part-time and we realized that LA might be the one of the few places where we could just go straight there and there would be an instant crowd and uh, and obviously through the internet you know you know everyone so by the time we got out to LA to to look at buildings in 2018 everyone kind of knew about bike shed so you turn up and it's like oh you're the guys from bike shed welcome which was really nice so it, there was no kind of resistance it was just this is the natural home for the next one and we thought it'd be easier to go there and then come back to england and come back to europe after that yeah so that's um that sort of leads on well to sort of the next step for bike shed from la are you planning on sort of this global takeover well it's a it's a good idea isn't it i mean yeah we i mean bike shed i, I mean I, I, it sounds like a stupid way of saying it but there's loads of people out there that love this culture and no one else has quite done what Bike Shed's done. So there's a few people that kind of flirted around it and there's a few people that are making valiant efforts and that's great. And, uh, and there's a few little standalone places and they're all awesome, but none of them really have the scale and they don't combine all the things that we do at the moment. And so we get emails all the time from people all over the world going, when's Bike Shed coming to my town and how can I help? Um, whether they want to run it or they want a franchise or they want to fund it. And so we know that there's audience, there's customers, there's audiences, there's people out there that want it. And uh, so I kind of say that it's almost like those communities deserve something like Bike Shed. So if we can do that, that would be awesome. And we've made a brand that's kind of globally recognized. And the fact that we've got the merchandise and apparel, uh, we've got a business that translates, you know, we can be selling all of that stuff in shops and online it allows us to, to move about into those places more easily than if we were just hospitality. And also having the barbershop and the tattoo studio and doing the events stuff. So yeah, I mean, we definitely want to expand and we are planning expansion. I think probably what we'd do is do some more in America first. Yeah. And the reason for that is I would love to come back and do one in Lisbon or Barcelona. That would be awesome. But I don't speak Portuguese or Spanish. Yeah. And and never mind going to Milan and trying to speak Italian or doing business in Italy at this stage. Um, that would be tough. And it's just, uh, we're in America, they speak English, there's bikes everywhere. And we know, especially in places like Austin and Dallas and Atlanta, there's huge bike communities that look just like the community in LA. And a lot of people from LA have moved to those cities, especially through COVID. Yeah. And so <coughs> it's kind of our tribe is there. So I think we'd do a few more in America and then come back to Europe. 
because um, it's actually a really difficult business to run. I mean, from the outside, Bike Shed looks like this huge, shiny empire of gorgeousness, but it's a crap way to earn money. It mm. really is. I mean, restaurants don't make money. They yeah. really don't. And especially, I mean, if, if you go out to restaurants, and I'm sure you do, you'll know that restaurants these days are completely polarized. They're either really expensive high-end and it's posh and you get table service and it's a posh night out or it's commoditized and you order on your phone on an app and they either deliver it to your door or bring it to your table. All that stuff in the middle has kind of gone away. Mm. And we're trying to occupy that middle ground of waiter to table service so you have a conversation and it feels human. But it's a terrible way to make money. I mean... You know, the margins in restaurant, you, you know, you're lucky if you break even after COVID. And before that, you know, you were lucky in a restaurant if you did 10% profit in a restaurant. Wow. So, and retail's not much easier because you, you have tumbleweed days where nobody comes in and buys anything. Yeah. So it's a terrible way to actually make money. So um, we, you, it's the kind of thing where you can't just fund it by going, oh, we've made loads of money. Let's go and open in Austin. That's just not a thing. Yeah. You know, we're kind of going, oh, right, phew, we made it through another six months. This is good. We're still here. And we did a show. And, and the show helps because the show actually is like a huge marketing event. And the show has a, you know, is, is a bit more profitable than doing kind of hospitality the and the, the other stuff. The show is huge now. The show is huge, yeah. But ob the problem is, is every year we make it big, bigger and it costs more money. Yeah. I mean, that's the challenge. So everyone goes, oh, it's bigger every year and it's amazing and more brands come in. And it's like, yeah, but also the landlords who own the building charge another 20%, 30% more. And then we need to be bigger because last year it was too crowded. So we're chasing our tail all the time. So the only way we can grow is by investment. Mm. So we're constantly, it's, it's like I, I feel like I've spent the last five years raising money to grow and do things, which is really stressful. <coughs> not not an easy way to build a business because at some point we need to be you know able to fund growth yeah so it's a bit of a boring conversation a bit of a business conversation but we're limited in our growth by the goodwill of our backers um a bike i mean people ask a lot about bike sheds ownership um i mean it really is kind of run and primarily sort of owned by a group of us with me and vicky and some, some of the people that sit on the board who started it all um, but it's we've got 94 investors and investors is kind of a funny word really they're like super members so they're just people that went bike sheds awesome do you need a bit of money and we went yes so we created an investment vehicle that they put money into and now 94 of us own bike shed wow so it's kind of quite weird but to grow that there's very few people in there that you go oh they're really rich they can they can fund global growth um, none of them really did it for that reason. They did it because they just wanted it to be there and exist and be cool. So growth involves, at some point, we need to be a bit grown up without selling out and without ruining it and finding some people that can really go, okay, well, this is really awesome. Let's do it properly um, and not always be running around chasing our tails. When the Shed LA was being constructed, we were in London. We were so yeah. excited about it, but being a fly on the wall, it did sound like sort of from a red tape standpoint, it was quite tough to get permits and all this stuff. And then obviously COVID came along. Oh yeah. Was there a part of you that ever thought the shed is, this could be the end of the shed? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times we thought that this could be the end of the shed because when we first, when we were first doing it through this process of getting friends to give us money, uh, we didn't get enough, uh, but we got a lease and we had builders. And a few times we were like, oh, we're going to run out of money. And it was like, well, 
we either need the people that gave us some money to give us some more or we need to f they need to find some more friends uh, or we need to find some more friends and so we we're constantly going uh, well I, I mean when we first found the the venue in Shoreditch we weren't looking for 12,000 square feet of railway arches we were looking for 5,000 square feet of shop so we we were like oh we need quite a lot more money but look at this place it's awesome and everyone went yeah it's awesome here you go have a bit more money um so that helped but uh, loads of times and, and when covid turned up it was like that's it we're screwed because you know hospitality retail and events were businesses that were literally ended by covid it just killed them um i mean i think pre-covid and I, I don't know if this statistic somebody can google it while i'm talking but um when uh when we were f when we were talking about bike shed and talking about why it was good to other people and to people who should support us and help us or get involved i was always amazed by the fact that we were in the top three percent of all restaurants on TripAdvisor in london it's a staggering figure which I is awesome it, yeah. and it would and you'd read it and it would say we're number 610 out of twenty-eight thousand restaurants or whatever it was now we're number whatever it is out of fifteen thousand restaurants wow. so what happened that's a huge chunk. Where did the other, you know, what, 13,000 restaurants go? You know, oh, have I just got the maths wrong? No, that's wrong, isn't it? 8,000 <laughs> like restaurants. That. Don't ask me to do maths. So, you know, the COVID ended restaurants. It ended events. It ended event space hire companies. It, it ended retail companies. You know, the high street was decimated. And, and that was our three income streams was, you know, and, and we were saved by the government's furlough scheme. Yeah. And we kept all our staff. I mean, what a lot of people did when COVID shut everything was they just fired everybody. And we were like, no. And I remember our accountant rang me up and said, you've got to fire everyone. And I said, I don't want to. And he said, good, good. Because now I've said that, I've done my job as an accountant, but I'm really glad that, you, that you're not going to do that. Wow. And he said, I think government help is coming. So hang on for another week. And, uh, and so we did. And then the government announced the furlough scheme and everyone kept their jobs through. I mean, obviously it was horrendous. Uh, everyone kept their jobs. So everybody came back to work. So when we reopened and closed again and then opened again and closed again, we reopened with all our staff instantly. And uh, I mean, even security and cleaners and barbershop who couldn't get furlough, we managed to scrape enough money together to look after them as well, um, which earned a lot of loyalty um, and friendships. And also we did the whole of the COVID response thing. We did the bike shed community response through COVID. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, it's, it's almost like every cloud has a silver lining and that was your silver lining for COVID. It was the, the bike shed response, which was incredible. Yeah, it kept us sane as well because we were going nuts. Yeah. And we're, we're literally sitting in Shoreditch. We'd, we had LA, we'd found the LA venue and we'd found builders and contractors. We'd taken on a lease. We'd raised more money to open in LA. And then we were thrown out of America. The borders were closed. So we were sitting in Shoreditch going, right, well, we're screwed. Um, who knows how long? I mean, we didn't know how long it was going to last. Um, everybody thought we'd all be closed for a couple of months. But we were far away from these contractors working on our behalf in L.A. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't fly. And um, I think one of Vicky's friends said, uh, my elderly parents live up north and uh, they both can't really leave the house and they're isolating do you know anybody who could go around and check in on them or even like pick up some groceries and vicky was like yeah probably probably within all the people that follow bike shed we'll know someone and we did and then vicky said oh wouldn't that be awesome if everybody we knew did that and uh sometimes you know 
those little conversations like pub conversations turn into something and i said well why don't we why don't we use facebook so i started a facebook group called bike shed community response and just invited people to join it and said who'd like to volunteer and then in, in two days we had 800 volunteers and i was like oh a big turn okay that's quite <laughs> a good start so we then realized that it was a thing and that we should do it and then it, it turned into a really complicated thing. We got Indian involved as a sort of supporter sponsor and then this company called Gopher who had a courier app, let us use the app for free. And then we got everybody registered and then there was the team Rubicon who do disaster emergency response, they got involved. So we had all these people sort of getting involved saying this is a good idea. And we ended up with 1,400 registered police checked, insurance checked riders all with an app that had a, a pass on them so they could ride anywhere in the UK, all wearing bibs and tabards with Bike Shed Community Response written on them, being allowed to ride around the UK like an emergency service with the official sanctioning of the police and the NHS. And it was crazy. Yeah. And I, we did 30,000 deliveries through COVID. And we were the first people, to, I, and I believe we were the first, but it was the NHS who trialed with us doing door-to-door COVID tests. And we did it with surgeons. So what would happen at the Royal Free was we'd, a surgeon would ring in and go, I've got a bit of a sniffle. I don't know if I should come in. I don't know if it's COVID. And we'd send a courier to the Royal Free, one of our volunteers. He'd pick up a COVID testing kit, take it to the surgeon's house, wait outside where the surgeon swabbed himself, take it back to the Royal Free, and they'd test it. And they'd ring him up and say, no, mate, you haven't got COVID. You've got a cold coming to work. And then he'd be able to do some operations. So we trialed that, which is, and then suddenly a year later, that's how you get your COVID test. It's mind blowing. So that w- that was incredible, and that really, I think, what that did for us, it, it kept us sane. It kept our riders sane. There were a lot of people that said, "Oh, you probably saved my marriage because otherwise, yeah. I'm at home all the time, annoying." Well, one of my friends did it. Yeah. He signed up for your community response, <coughs> and he was stuck at home, furloughed, going stir crazy. And he said it was just great to get out on the bike and have purpose, yeah, something to do. Also, it was awesome weather that summer. Yeah, I mean, we had the best summer ever and everybody was out on their bikes riding around doing deliveries. But we had people doing hundreds of miles every week, people going through tires and chains and, you know, and, and we, we had to do this weird network as well because the people making stuff and giving stuff away weren't very organized. So we'd have a bunch of people literally in Aberdeen going, we've made some PPE personal protection equipment, whatever that actually stands for. And we've got some people in Bristol who want it. And be like, well, that's not very clever. There must be somebody closer than Bristol. But we, you know, to try and get involved in that level of logistics would have been really complicated. And we thought it's easier to just get three people to do a journey. So we'd have these halfway houses across the UK. So we'd have to get the pickup from Aberdeen that would go to maybe Manchester. And then somebody from Manchester would go down to London. And then somebody from London would ride to Bristol. Like a pass the parcel. It was a pass the parcel. And, and it got really, really complicated with all these spreadsheets and journeys and maps. And it was, it took all our time. But it paid off in the end. Yeah, and I think it showed people we weren't just London hipsters on cafe races. Because I think that one of the first challenges when we did Bike Shed was people thought it was very niche. And they were like, well, people would almost say, well, I haven't got a beard and tattoos. Can I still come to the Bike Shed? And we were like, come on. <laughs> but they they didn't know they could turn up on their commuter bike or their whatever and and i think it really showed that we were just bikers like everybody else and you know 
and whatever a hipster is, I'm not quite sure. It didn't really apply. I mean, I've looked like this for a very long time before it was anything to do with hipsters. I think I had my first tattoo when I was 17. So, uh, you know, that whole label that we got in some of the bike community was a bit annoying and it mm. kind of got rid of it for us, which was good. That's awesome. And then from the uh, community response, yourself and Vicky earned your, is it OBEs? No, we got British Empire Medals. British Empire Medals, yeah. sorry. No, not, not quite as posh as an OBE. Right, still. Apparently. It's incredible. It's the same order or something. A yeah. bit confusing. I get a bit confused. That must have been an experience. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. Mm. Um, and at first, sort of a bit weird. And we were like, is this appropriate? And then we realized, really, it was on behalf of all the volunteers. And also, it's not often that motorcycle riders get recognized by the Queen and and the Prime Minister. And we were going, right, so Boris Johnson and the Queen sat down and discussed bike shed community response and said oh marvelous they deserve a medal and i was like that's awesome that that's really cool that um and that was the thing that was really special for me is that motorcycle riders were recognized for the characters they really are people do people that usually put their hand up and volunteer for things and do stuff and they're the kind of people that don't leave people by the roadside so i like the idea of that being celebrated rather than what we're normally known for which is being noisy having accidents and riding too fast yeah, it's built a really good image for the biking community, I yeah. think, 100%. Um, now, just one last thing before we wrap things up. So Jed and I, one of our sort of terrible hobbies is trawling through Facebook Marketplace, seeing what bikes are up for sale. We noticed the other day that your Hoxton oh is up yeah. for sale. You know, the, that, yeah. that, that, that it comes week. around, that bike. Yeah, and it was one of the first bikes that when I went to the shed, I saw and I was like, I've got to have a bike like that one day. Yeah. And um, so what bikes are you riding at the moment? Because it's obviously not that. No, I've got um, I've got a Triumph Thruxton 1200 RS, which is just a brilliant bike. Very difficult to customize because mm. there's not really much you can do to it. I've, I've done as much as I can, but really I don't want to spoil it too much because finally the manufacturers make motorcycles I want to ride. Mm. So um, that's my ride when I'm in the UK, when I have time to ride bikes. Um, in LA, I was riding around on a, an FTR 1200, an Indian. That was really good. Unfortunately, membership Dan crashed it. Luckily, he d didn't break himself too badly. Um, and um, we, we've actually got in LA, we've got an arrangement with Eagle Rider where we've got a little fleet of bikes. So we've got Scramblers and T120s and Tenere's and a whole bunch of strange things and some Royal Enfields. So I get to ride those, which is quite nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> I could borrow one of those. And I, I don't own a bike in LA. Um, and then here I've still got the Paul Smart, but mm. it's too precious to ride. Well, no, actually it's not too precious to ride. That's not true. I used to take it on track days. Um, when you own a Ducati, if you leave it sitting around for too long, you get kind of anxious that all the belts have gone brittle mm. and all the seals have kind of gone chalky and that you shouldn't ride it unless you give it full service. So well, I've been away so much, I haven't been able to ride the bike. And so because I haven't ridden it and I'm now too scared to ride it because I'm worried that the belt will snap <laughs> and... It will sort of drop a valve into the piston or something. So I'm just a bit nervous to just jump on it and yeah. fire it up. Um, they're awesome. If you ride those bikes every day, they're indestructible. But if you don't, they're not. Yeah. So I'd love to ride that. And then I've got uh, this Royal Enfield mm. custom that we did a couple of years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. Is that still out on the street? Uh, Riding, is it? No, it's not. I should ride that bike, but it's always on display and it's always in the shop. And it looks nice, and I don't want to clean it. Fair enough. So yeah. I'll, I'll always end up riding something else. 
Um, it's a really good bike, actually. The, uh, my only complaint is that um, we wanted, because we were trying to build it to be a reflection of the bike shed. It was a, a collaboration build between yeah. us and Royal Enfield. And we en I didn't want to like have lots of stupid things on it. So um, we decided to make the seat quilted like a Chesterfield sofa. So it kind of looks all right. It doesn't look too stupid. Um, but it makes the seat really shiny and slippery. Oh, that's interesting. And because the leather's really stretched. Yeah. And so when you ride it, you slide about <laughs> because it's too shiny. <laughs> and also it's really good kind of proper waterproof, usable. Because yeah. I, I like my bikes usable. So it's just the seat. I need a different seat to just really to ride it. To or somebody said pour Coca-Cola on it. I was like, okay, maybe not. <laughs> uh, apparently that's what people used to do in the old days with vinyl seats. So I, I might need to do something about the slippery seat. Because other than that, it's a really good bike. It's fantastic. You know, you yeah, they're, they're great things. When, when you take those Royal Enfield 650s and take all the heavy bits off the bike and, and put slightly freer breathing exhaust pipe on them, they suddenly become very perky because they don't weigh anything. No. So I think I took it from... 42 brake horsepower to 49 or something on paper but it feels more like 65 brake horsepower on a normal bike yeah. it's just it's just you know fun good power to weight ratio. yeah yeah amazing well dutch thank you so much for coming on it's uh it's a real honor to have you as our first ever guest and it's, it's pleasure. so interesting hearing about the shed you're very welcome well thank you very much cool cheers cheers